Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about the Facets 2022 conference in Antwerp and Victoria's visit to Cartier's watchmaking facilities in Switzerland. Hey everyone, welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. New York City. I'm headed your way. Really? When? I'm headed your way on Thursday. I would have told everybody, um, and by the time people are listening to this, I will have been there and have already gone, but there's a watch conference happening over the weekend, the Dubai Horology Forum, and it's organized organized by the same people who put together Dubai Watch Week, which is a biennial event that takes place in November, you know, every other year. And I've never managed to make it partly because it kind of backs up right against Thanksgiving. My son's birthday is right around then. And so I've never been to it, but it's a really, it's kind of a big deal. It's been going on since 2015 and it attracts a lot of the world's top watchmakers, top brands. You know, it styles itself as an educational platform. I don't think it's really a selling exhibition in any way. So there are a lot of lectures and panels and, you know, thought provoking conversations going on. And so they're taking their traveling edition to New York City this coming weekend. It's going to be over the 20th. 24th and 25th. So again, it'll have passed by the time people are listening, but I'm excited. They did one traveling edition in London in 2018, and I believe this is their second traveling edition. So I, I sadly won't have time to come into the office because the other the other news is that I'm bringing my mom with me. I took this opportunity to sort of get my mom out of town and, you know, remind her of why she loves New York. She hasn't been there in a long time since I used to live there. So I'm going to be just sort of, you know, going to these panels and lectures and so on. And then at night, I'll be hanging out with my mom. So that's my big news. I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. Uh, I actually have a clarification about what I said on the last podcast that I okay. said I was going to a, a barn in New Jersey. It turned out to be a barn in Warwick, New York. But it wasn't. It wasn't really a barn. It was like a reconverted barn, and it was nice. It was farmland, and uh, there was a pool. So um, I didn't. I didn't have my vacation in Jersey, which is which is a departure for you. So yes, <laughs> yes, I was very happy about that. And uh, Warwick, New York. We went to the local jewelers, Forever Jewelry. So give them a shout out. See if they listen. Susan was a little uh, appalled at my description of a barn in New Jersey. But. <laughs> Was it a uh, barn, like a sort of an Airbnb type? Yes, it was an Airbnb. It was a reconverted place. And uh, I, I wouldn't call it luxury, but uh, it's uh, it had very, it had beautiful grounds. And, um, you know, it was nice. It was, the pool was, I mean, it's cool to have a pool. If I were a physically fit person, I could run <laughs> You're around <not>? stuff <laughs> as opposed to. You'd be doing laps. And yeah. If, if I was actually the kind of person who exercised, like a job and stuff like that but it was very nice and uh not in new jersey and not in new jersey well so i wanted to ask you so there was a conference in antwerp last week but you weren't able to make it to antwerp but i understand you attended virtually or at least part of it is that right yes yes i watched a lot of the videos afterwards it was one of the first i would say industry conferences that we've had in a long time since covid and it was an interesting forum to discuss some of the lessons of covid and how the world has changed so there was a lot of uh, really prominent speakers. The Prime Minister of Belgium, wow, Alexander de Croo, he spoke and he gave a very strong endorsement of Russian diamonds coming to Antwerp, which I was 
a little a little surprised by. What was his rationale? You, you sorry, I have to butt in and ask. Like how how did he? Well, I think he gave that? kind of the standard line that if Antwerp didn't get them, they would go to Dubai. So you're not necessarily hurting Russia. But um, from what I understand, a lot of the diamonds, at least in the initial shipments, actually did come to Antwerp because there was issues in Dubai. So yeah, chances are they actually did by keeping their gates open, by Antwerp keeping their gates open, they probably did help uh, Russia a bit. I mean, uh, diamonds are not the biggest foreign currency earner for Russia by any means, but it's basically, you know, the the standard argument that you're just going to hurt Belgium. You're not necessarily going to hurt Russia, and therefore we should let them in. Uh, De Beers CEO, Bruce Cleaver, who is, I think he's an extremely good spokesperson for the industry, i got to say. He was uh, asked about the contract De Beers has with Botswana, and there's been a lot of negotiations. A lot of people have said, you know, it should be signed by now. And he actually gave an interesting reasoning why it hasn't been signed, which I hadn't heard before. He said that there was also, it's not just about the diamond contract. There's also a question of mine leases, I guess, how De Beers negotiates the rent it pays for the land. So that's something that's also under negotiation. That's kind of a long-term thing. And that's something that's very important and technical and complicated and things that people are, you know, not want to get wrong. David Kelly of the Natural Diamond Council. Mm -hmm. He was there. Actually, the second uh, podcast guest that I've mentioned, because he was on our show and Bruce Cleaver was on our show. And he was talking about, so speaking of Russia, he said that because Al Rosa has left the Natural Diamond Council, it's going to have about half of its financial resources in 2023 that it had previously. So that's a huge blow to that uh, organization. Iris Vanderveken, formerly of the Responsible Jewelry Council, now of the Watch and Jewelry Initiative. Uh, she was there and she said something actually very interesting. She said that her first industry conference was about like 15 years ago. And I guess it was also in Antwerp. And she had to ask uh, the moderator, could you do a session on sustainability? They just did kind of a quick one. And like three people showed up at the end of the day. And she said, now it's so front and center that she moderated a whole panel on sustainability during the conference. And um, it just shows how the mindset has shifted so much that it's kind of gone from this also ran to something that's that's uh, front and center. She also kind of played off something that David Kelly said, which is that when we sell jewelry and diamonds, it's all about her. And he meant the consumer, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then Ira said, well, how many women are in the room? And it turned out to be not a lot of women. And, you know, most of the panels were mostly men. And that's something that's still a problem for the diamond industry, I would say, in particular. Wow. And I guess because I, I saw the press release for this, the conference, I think it was called Facets 2022, um, and it said the focus was really on, on consumers. Did they talk a lot about lab grown? I keep hearing or I feel like I've heard that in Antwerp, a good portion of the Diamantaires are, are now into lab grown. So to what degree was that a part of the conversation? It came up. Roberto Coyne was on one of the panels and he said that he wouldn't use lab grown, but apparently his son is using lab grown. And Bruce Cleaver basically said what you expect them to, you know, there was people from Botswana and Namibia there. They said what, you know, you expect them to. It was definitely something on people's mind. And I guess the kind of bigger argument is, do you make an affirmative case for natural diamonds or do you look at it as kind of a war and, and try to take this new interloper down? And uh, you, you don't have a diamond discussion without that topic. So, yeah, certainly the elephant in the room. <laughs> 
it's good to hear that these events are happening again. Not, I'm not surprised, obviously. It is time to, to have these kinds of gatherings. They used to be so common. I remember ages ago, one of my favorite early memories of being in this world of jewelry, and I was covering diamonds at the time for National Jeweler, which feels like a million years ago, but it, there was an event in Antwerp, and I was there, and Bill Clinton was there. Well, I, was at, I was at that one, too. Yeah, it was like, I want to say roughly 2005, and it was exciting. You know, it was exciting to be there. It was exciting to have dignitaries around. It felt like, you know, things were important and they were happening and people were talking. And so, yeah, the fact that these are happening again is good. And I do hope you can attend the next one whenever that might be. This seemed like a worthwhile event, and I hope they keep having them. And, you know, I think it's good, uh, you know, this Jewels Mutual thing is coming up, which we talked about with Mark. Yeah. I'm uh, going. Two weeks, yeah. So when is that? That's I leave on October 14th. It starts that day. It's a Friday, so it'll be mid next month. And yeah, I'm pretty excited. I think the the people who are doing a lot of the programming are PSFK, which is the trend consultancy, and we had their head of research, Scott Latchett, on our show last year. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. Well, do you want to hear about my recent trip too? Yes. It was a combo of a personal vacation and a professional business trip, but all on the same sort of ticket. I went to Copenhagen for a few days right after Labor Day with my partner, my, you know, not quite husband, but <laughs> more or less husband, Jim. And, um, we had a blast. Copenhagen is a wonderful city, super progressive, tons to do, easy to walk around. The food is incredible as everybody, you know, who's ever looked on a 50 best restaurants of the world list knows a good portion of them, or at least certainly the top portion is in is in Copenhagen. And so we were only there for a few days, but they were lovely. And then I carried on to Switzerland and landed in Geneva, but then got a VIP greeting at the airport, which was stunning. I literally walked off the plane and it was one of those journeys where you're not on a, I forget what they call those, like the bridge that leads you from the plane to the arrival zone. You know, I actually had to disembark from the plane, walk down onto the tarmac and then head, you know, on my way into baggage claim. But there was a woman there with a sign saying Victoria Gamelski, which I've never had before. And they shuttled me through sort of the, the airport in Geneva and into a, you know, got my luggage and, and, and this was all thanks to Cartier, which was my benefactor, my host. They were putting together a press trip that apparently had been in the works for a couple of years, but kept getting clearly delayed and postponed because of COVID. They finally were able to stage it. Pick me up. I got a car service to Lausanne, which I think I'd been to once maybe a decade or so ago. A beautiful city. Not that far from Geneva. It's on Lake Geneva, but uh, east you know, along the shore. It's a gorgeous city. I think the Olympic Committee is headquartered there. We stayed at the Beau Rivage, which is a spectacular hotel right on the lake. And it was just beautiful. The weather couldn't have been lovelier. It was blue skies, 75 degrees. People were out and about on the day I arrived. And it was a Sunday, so I got a little bit of time just to walk around. Basically, this event they'd put together, there were about 20 members of the press. There was a Hodinkee editor there who was great to finally meet, somebody I'd been in touch with over sort of text and phone. But there weren't a lot of Americans there. There were a good portion of Asian editors from Taiwan. There was a couple of people, one from Hong Kong, one from Singapore, and a huge press team from Cartier from their headquarters in Paris. And their point, I think, was just to introduce us to their watchmaking facilities. Now, they have five sites spread out across a number of different cantons in Switzerland. The main facility is in La Chaux de Fonds, which is this Valley de Joux, the cradle of fine watchmaking. They've got a second 
or not a second, but a, another facility, the one we visited first, is in a small, small village called Cuvée. I've never heard of Cuvée. It's in the Val de Travers, about an hour north of Lausanne, up into the, the Jura. It's really like this subalpine range. So it does have a number of winding roads. If you're kind of prone to car sickness, you're going to get a little woozy because there's a lot of switchbacks. But these little villages, they're so small that you're just driving past and you, you could blink and you would miss them. You wouldn't even know it was a village. It's just a bunch of like old farmhouses along these narrow roads. And we turned, made a turn at one point, I guess, as we were entering Cuvée. And what was fascinating is you see these little stone kind of village facades and you don't think twice about what you just think that's all there is to see. And then you turn down a road and you go down some ways and suddenly you're in front of a really big facility, like a massive modern building, lots of glass and stone. And it's set against this backdrop of rolling hills. And it's kind of stunning. You're not expecting it. And so that is indeed where one of Cartier's five watchmaking facilities is located. It is the manufacturing lab. And, you know, it's been owned by Cartier for years. They initially, I think, were going to turn it into a watchmaking production facility, but instead they devoted it to experimental technology. And it was fascinating that we were able to visit it. They had not ever shown it to journalists before. I think it's been functioning since 2018. And they showed us kind of where they dream up the technology that the, they then implement in their actual production facility, their main one in Le Chaux de Fonds. And it was absolutely fascinating. I mean, we saw things that were you know, seemed like glimpses of the future of watch and for that matter, jewelry production. PSFK, the trend consultancy that we, we interviewed its head of research last year on our podcast, we talked about all kinds of futurist technologies coming to the fore. And one of the ones he mentioned was digital twins. The idea is that one day in the future, every product you buy will have its digital twin. So you'll have the physical product in your hand, be it a car or be it a watch, but there will be a digital twin that lives in the cloud. And, you know, maybe at some point you'll be able to get alerts at some, you know, that say, hey, your watch needs lubrication. It's time to take it into the repair shop. And so we saw a bit of that in action. I mean, it's not quite to that stage where as a consumer, you buy something and you get access to its digital twin. But in terms of production, they're using that technology at Cartier. And it's just fascinating. They, they talked about how in 2015, basically everything they did was a paper-based system. That's how they track products that were going through from A to Z in terms of the manufacturing. And every, every time they needed to make a change to uh, some sort of drawing or sketch or plan or it required, you know, insane amounts of paper corrections, you know, tracking down which department has which plan, let's fix the detail, even if it's something as small as like changing a millimeter size on like a crown or something, for example, of a watch. And it's stunning to think that that did happen. And that surely was the way that everything was made for, you know, well over 100 years. And now all these things are clearly all digital. And so you have the ability to just rapidly change the the speed at which you manufacture and the speed at which you can not only get products to market, but fix products, can repair things, essentially address consumer issues in this way that's so much, I mean, the rapid scale, so much of what they talked about was just speeding things to market and being able to be very responsive. A lot of this clearly came out as a result of the pandemic. And they talked about, for example, you know, in China, we don't yet know how long their zero COVID policy will, will go, but we, you know, we can expect some activity in terms of consumer buying for, for the new year, for the Chinese new year in February. And so being able to be like quick on your feet, agile, adapt to 
what you're seeing, change plans, redirect products from one market to another. I mean, all that stuff is really hinges on digital capabilities. And certainly it, it was blew me away. I mean, we saw robots. We saw somebody at a screen that looked like a, a minority report. Remember that movie with Tom Cruise, sort of talking to somebody in another facility on a number of different screens, touching the screens, moving things around. The robot was really fascinating. I don't know why I'm surprised, but there's still, I think, in the world of fine jewelry, high jewelry, Cartier-level jewelry, there is still a huge emphasis on craft. We did also visit, in addition to this Cuvée facility, we visited La Chaux de Fonds, which is where they primarily make their watches. And we also visited next door this ancient farmhouse where they specialize in their métiers d'art, their crafts, those incredible stone setting and marquetry techniques we see on their high jewelry pieces. So they have all of that. But the fact that it's this seamless marriage between high tech and high craft. It was really fascinating. And the robot kind of brought that home for me because you're sitting there, you know, making these mechanical timepieces that, you know, will hopefully function in perpetuity. They're based on technologies that are hundreds of years old. And you're seeing this robot deliver things across the shop floor and cut production time in half because it's able to pick up all these pieces, deliver them to different facilities around Switzerland. It was all so interesting. And then just to underscore the maybe even more interesting than all of that was the transparency that the fact that we were able to see this, the fact that we were given tours, we were even able to take photos, not of everything. They do have a launch coming in October. It was really just amazing how much openness they they shared. Cyril Vigneron, their CEO, was there. Uh, we had lunch with him. He gave a presentation and had Q&A and incredibly smart, cerebral, big thinker, publishes a lot on LinkedIn, from what I understand about luxury and about these competing ideas you know, luxury used to be opaque. It used to pride itself on not sort of showing what's happening in the back and really just delivering some perfect product. And there were no questions asked about how that came to you. And it's 180 degrees different from that now. Yeah. And I, I was actually just discussing this with somebody. I mean, it's in uh, the luxury house's best interest to talk about the craft behind their pieces because it is so detailed and it can be so time consuming and it is so specialized. And people, you know, when people buy uh, item, a uh, piece of jewelry, they often wonder, well, why does it cost so much? Is it all marketing or branding and stuff? And I think it's important to let people know this is how it's made and this is why it costs so much. But getting back to the thing about the digital twin, what would be the benefits of that? Like, why would you want a digital twin? Well, I think anything that has the potential to break or need a repair, I mean, this digital twin, let's say it senses, okay, this watch needs an upgrade on its oil, or there's a slight differential in terms of its timekeeping, we think you need to bring this in. How would, I mean, given that mechanical watches are a non-digital product, like how would the digital twin know that the non-digital product is broken or hurt? Or I think the idea, and this would be further into the future, and I did ask Cartier about this, because like I said, their digital twins really are for the manufacturing purpose where I see the value there. It's like we have a digital record of every aspect of this watch. And when the production team decides we need to make a tweak, we don't have to go through reams of paper and like communicate with 20 different departments to make sure everybody's on board. We just issue an update through the system and everybody's got that within seconds. So there's clearly a value there. I think the idea, and I remember Scott Latchett from PSFK talked about this, is that maybe there would be like 
a chip, a tiny chip in your watch that's mechanical that enables it to have this connection with its digital counterpart. That does seem like it's much further away, but it was very exciting to see that digital twin sort of in play, that what it looks like, because I hadn't, you know, I'd heard of it. And in fact, weirdly enough, because I'd just been in Copenhagen just a few days before, I'd gone to the Design Museum in Copenhagen. They had this really fascinating exhibition called The Future is Present. And throughout this part of the space where they had the exhibition, they had these little placards posing very provocative questions about the future. Everything from, you know, if you could sort of order your sort of the way you're going to be buried on an app, would you, you know, how will we introduce ourselves in the future? Will we, will we introduce ourselves through our pronouns instead of our names? Because this idea of gender fluidity is going to be coming more and more and more important. And we're all going to have to understand the way we want to be addressed. You know, these kinds of questions. And one of the questions talked about digital twins. It was about, will we all interact with our products in the analog physical space? And then equally in the digital space, it it did feel like a lot of this stuff that we think about as sort of far off robotics and AI, it's not far off. It's here. It's all happening. It's all happening. Have have you been to other watch factories? No. Uh, Well, yes, I have actually. I probably at least a dozen over the years. Omega had a really impressive industrialized operation that I saw probably eight or 10 years ago, but I don't recall the level of digitization that I saw at Cartier. I'm sure it's there. And I did wonder what's happening at Patek Philippe, what's happening at Rolex. I, I have to think about what to do with this information, but it was deeply fascinating, extremely impressive. And I was great to get that beautiful tour to be invited. Yeah, sounds amazing. Do you want to talk a little bit about the JA Summer Show? Yeah, I mean, you, you'd mentioned to me and it reminded me that I did get an email some time back saying the longstanding, you know, stalwart of the summer, the JA New York Summer Show was no more. What, remind me, like, when was it even supposed to be? It was usually held in like late July, right? Yeah, I think it was traditionally... I mean, you know, when it was the show, the number one show in the industry, I think it kind of bounced around from June to July. And then when JCK came around, it kind of went to July. And um, then I guess the last two or three years, and I mean, you know, COVID obviously intervened. It was kind of being held with this other show owned by the same trade show group. And uh, now there will not be a summer show, I guess. The JA show, which is owned by Emerald and is a different uh, entity than JA, the organization, is uh, they're not going to have a summer show anymore. For those of us who remember when the JA show was the big, big kahuna, I mean, it's truly an end of an era. It was the first show I ever went to. And uh, I remember being multiple floors and it was was, uh, exciting. I mean, I don't think it ever kind of, I don't remember it ever being at like the Vegas level where the aisles are crowded and there's that kind of palpable sense of excitement. But, you know, it was the biggest show and it was a big deal. Yeah. I mean, I certainly spent many a summer afternoon walking the aisles. It was, um, I guess over the years it had faded in terms of its import, I guess. Is that a gentle way of saying it? It felt like. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think the other two shows that J.A. runs, J.A. New York runs now are a little bigger perhaps or or doing better uh jck kind of came and that kind of 
sucked up a lot of the resources during the summer. And uh, that's kind of where the trade uh, got focused. Uh, but, you know, in, even, you know, as recently as five years ago, it wasn't just a JA New York show. There was also um, events. There was the AGS dinner. There was the, I think, I believe WJA. the WGA. Yes, yes. So, yes. I mean, it was kind of a whole week of events and it's not clear what's going to happen to those events at this point. But yeah, it was a big deal. And, you know, it was, uh, has a lot of memories for, uh, for us older folk. <laughs> Those who've been around the block. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, it was certainly a uh, sort of a standard feature of my summer. I do miss those events. I miss the WJA gala that took place at Chelsea Piers in, in late July. It was always it's such a fun time to be in New York. It's so, well, it could be hot, but usually it's just balmy and sunny and people are in good moods. So yeah, things are, things are changing. I suppose 20 years after I started in this industry or 20 plus, it, it's a, it's not surprising. Things do change in the pandemic, certainly sort of rerouted people <laughs> around, around the country and around this industry. And so I guess I'm glad we still have our annual gathering in Vegas, because if we didn't have to go to Vegas every June, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I'd be like, well, yeah. where, where am I? I count my years by these gatherings. Well, thank you, Rob. Always a thank pleasure. Thank you. Yes. For a while. Good to hear from you. And ha happy New Year to, to all our listeners, to all who celebrate. Happy yes. New Year. May it yes. be. Uh, may it be sweet. Thanks for listening to the Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on the Jewelry District by J.C.K. Thank you.